thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Well, on The Naked Scientists this week, we've got two new ways to combat cancer. We're turning mosquitoes into flying vaccinators so every bite can become beneficial and a promising new development in the field of Alzheimer's. Scientists have found a way to prevent the plaques that cause the disease in the first place from building up in the brain. And we'll hear how very shortly. Hello, I'm Chris Smith. Welcome. And also here this week is Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, thanks Chris. This week we are digging into the scientific future of farming. How will the farmers of the future feed a growing world population and how might climate change affect things? We'll also be hearing how peas are getting a genetic makeover to boost their productivity and their ability to improve the soil. Plus, how wild fruit trees in Africa are turning into the next generation of big yielding commercial crops. Thank you very much, Kat. And on the subject of plants, for this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave will be showing you how you can separate out all of the chemicals in chlorophyll. That's the green stuff that plants use to harness the sun's energy. If you'd like to have a go and experiment alongside them, then you're going to need some coffee filter paper, some leaves and also some nail varnish remover. I'm sure Dr Cat has some of that laying around. Meanwhile, if you have a question for us, then do get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. This week I'm going to kick off the news with an exciting news story about cancer research. Now, cancer is a disease that's caused by gene fault, both inherited from our parents and picked up during our lifetime as our DNA gets damaged. And increasingly, researchers are working out how to use these faults to our advantage to fight the disease. Now, this week, research from Professor Alan Ashworth and his team at the Institute for Cancer Research, this was funded by Cancer Research UK, has revealed another Achilles heel in cancer cells that we can try and target and they've just published their results in the journal Cancer Cell. So go on Kat, tell us how it works. Well, this new research is based on the concept of synthetic lethality. Now, let's explain this a bit more. In our cells, we have multiple ways of doing the same thing, such as repairing our DNA, and this helps to protect us if something goes wrong. So it's a bit like having a pair of trousers with a belt and braces holding them up. So if your belt breaks, then the braces will still work to preserve your dignity. If you're an American listener, you may want to substitute pants and suspenders here. But, uh, but cancer cells have a lot of genetic faults, and in many cases, they're just relying on one mechanism to do something. So if we can figure out what they're dependent on and target it with drugs, so effectively to snip the braces, then that might be a good way to treat cancer. And is that what these researchers have done? 
Yes. Now, Professor Alan Ashworth and his team have been looking at cancer cells with faults in specific genes involved in repairing damaged DNA. These are genes called MLH1 and MSH2. And faults in these genes have been found in a number of different cancers, including bowel cancer. And faults in either of these genes mean that cells tend to accumulate DNA damage, and this helps to turn them cancerous. But other pathways in the cell, the metaphorical braces, are still compensating for this lack of MLH1 or MSH too so the cancer still grows and spreads and the researchers realized that molecules called DNA polymerases these help to copy DNA when cells divide they were also repairing DNA and compensating so the researchers used a technique called RNAi uh, RNA interference to knock out certain DNA polymerases in cancer cells and they found that knocking out a polymerase called pole B could kill cells that didn't have MSH2 and targeting another polymerase called pole G could kill cells without MLH1 so what's next then? Because one of the key things about cancer is, of course, it's a very heterogeneous disease, isn't it? We don't just talk about having a cancer. There are many different types of cancers, and in one person with one cancer, the cell types are very, very varied in those cancers. Exactly, and um, we're starting now to look more at the faulty pathways in a, in a cancer rather than just the overall type of cancer. So rather saying, oh, you have bowel cancer and we treat it this way or breast cancer and we treat it this way you say you have a cancer that's deficient or defective in x gene now we know that this kind of approach already works to treat cancer and we're starting to see some very promising results from early clinical trials of new cancer drugs called PARP inhibitors and so at the moment the technique the researchers use to uh, block pole b or pole g isn't really transferable to patients Um, but scientists now really need to design drugs that could block these polymerases and uh, although that's some way away it's it's a really promising approach i think it's pretty exciting news indeed well given how many people suffer from cancer anything we can do to make the problem better uh, or more amenable to, to therapy the better now here's an interesting story cat because you're well across the idea of fingerprinting people have been fingerprinting crime scenes for well over 100 years i think the first recorded documented use of fingerprints to track someone down was in france about 1900 or so But what about your bacterial fingerprint? Scientists are saying this week there may be a new way to finger criminals by following the trail of microorganisms that they leave on things that they touch. Now, this is the work of Noah Fiera, who's a Colorado-based scientist. There's a paper in PNAS this week describing what they did. Their approach was to say, well, human beings are festooned with bacteria. In fact, some people have gone as far as to say we're passengers in our own bodies because there are roughly 50 times as many microbial cells on us and in us as there are cells in our whole body. So we're carrying around all these bacteria, and what's really amazing is that the profile of those bacteria, the number of different species, how many of each of the different species, is almost as unique to each of us as our fingerprint. And so what the researchers are saying is that when people touch things, they will leave their own bacterial fingerprint on it. Could we therefore, by looking at what bacteria are there, identify who they are? And to to prove the point, they went to a laboratory and they swabbed initially some computer keyboards and then they did the study on computer mice and they extracted genetic sequences from the bacteria on those keyboards because every time you just type something the bacteria on your fingers are being transferred onto the keyboard and they're there for the next person to pick up or scientists with swabs. Same story with computer mice. They were then able to go to a cross-section of, say, 250 random pairs of hands, including some people who had used those keyboards and, and computer mice, and they were able to say who owned the computer 
and who had been touching the mouse. So this is pretty amazing when you think that rather than having to do it the old traditional way, you can use bacteria as a proxy for who we've been with, where we've been and what we've been touching. So who knows, maybe in the future forensics will also be looking to bacteria to tell tales on people rather than just their own fingerprints. But what happens if you have lots of people touching the same thing? You just get a massive, massive mess of different bacteria. How can you sort that out? Well, that problem really is the same uh, that you experience with genetic fingerprinting techniques right now, which is if you go to a crime scene and you collect some DNA from a crime scene, then anyone who's been to that crime scene could potentially have contaminated it with their DNA. And this is the problem researchers face at the moment. They've got to disentangle the crime scene signature caused by the criminal from incidental people who just happened to be there and had nothing to do with it. And that's a big problem. The researchers aren't saying this would replace that technology. They're saying it would be an adjunct to it because it's much easier to get the bacteria off a surface because they're much more stable than, say, some DNA that someone may or may not have left behind. So it could be used to help rather than replace existing uh, forensic techniques. Interesting. So always wash your hands if you're going to burgle someone. Anyway, in my uh, earlier news story, I explained how researchers used a powerful technique called RNAi, or RNA interference, to switch off those DNA polymerases in cancer cells growing in the lab. Now, this technique's been used to switch off genes in cells and in small organisms like worms and fruit flies. But until now, we haven't really shown that it can work in humans. It's really been a technique that's been restricted to lab research. But now, Mark Day Davis and his colleagues in the US have published some research in the journal Nature showing the first inklings that we might be able to get this technique to work in patients. Well, you better start by first of all telling us actually what this RNAi is for, for the uninformed. Well, RNAi stands for RNA interference, as I said, and when a gene is switched on, it produces a little message in the form of RNA. Now, that's a chemical that's similar to DNA. And this RNA message then goes into the rest of the cell, where it's read by the cell's protein factories, and the appropriate protein is produced. It's a bit like copying a recipe out on a piece of paper, then taking that piece of paper into the kitchen to bake a cake rather than taking out the whole recipe book. Now researchers discovered that short reverse stretches of RNA could effectively silence these RNA messages and individually switch specific genes off. Now it's an incredibly powerful technique that helps researchers to switch genes on and off in the lab as we heard in my earlier story but it's not been clear whether it actually works in larger animals for example humans. And does it? Well, in this new research, uh, the scientists were running a small-scale clinical trial to test RNAi in patients with cancer, and they were using tiny nanoparticles to deliver the RNA to the tumours. Now, for reasons that we don't really understand, nanoparticles seem to love going into tumours, so it's quite a good way of delivering this stuff. And the scientists discovered that the nanoparticles had effectively delivered their RNA payload into the cancer cells, and it was working as expected. The specific gene they were targeting, a gene called RRM2, was getting switched off. Which sounds pretty impressive. Is this, therefore, a viable next-generation treatment for cancer? Uh, not quite yet, unfortunately. This is a very small-scale, very early trial. And in this paper, the researchers do only present data from three patients, all of whom had melanoma, that's a type of skin cancer. Now, we don't know from this data whether the RNAi actually helped to treat their cancer. All we know is that it was working 
uh, as expected, it was helping to switch off the gene they were targeting. So it's a really impressive demonstration that this technique can work in humans. And it certainly bodes well and is very exciting for future research and hopefully future treatments based on this kind of technology. We're talking about technology informing future treatments. How about the idea of turning mosquitoes, a species that's universally acknowledged as probably the most dangerous species on Earth because they cause millions, quite literally, of deadly diseases like malaria and dengue and yellow fever. Well, a group of researchers in Japan have said, well, why don't we use mosquitoes and turn bad into good and make them into flying vaccines? What they've done is to insert genes into the mosquito's salivary gland so that every time the mosquito bites, because it injects some of its saliva, which it uses as an anticoagulant, and also uh, to prevent the immune system from attacking the mosquito's mouthparts when it's drinking blood. If the mosquito is genetically modified to add various other things with its saliva, it can work like a vaccine. And what they've done as a test and proof of principle is to add a, a small protein called SP15, which is essential for Leishmania, another parasite, to infect and spread in a, in a human. And in tests on mice, what this group of researchers who are based in Japan, this is Shigeto Yoshida at uh, Yichi, that's Yichi as opposed to Ichi, have found is that mice who are exposed to these mosquitoes build up immunity to this protein which is in their saliva, and this can protect them, other researchers have shown, against Leishmania. There are some ethical considerations. Not everyone would like a mosquito buzzing around that's vaccinating them against things without any control. But on the other hand, it is an important proof of principle and it might be possible with certain diseases, maybe also by modifying other mosquitoes that don't necessarily target humans to control certain diseases that way. Oh, I don't fancy being bitten on purpose. Anyway, also in the news this week, scientists have discovered a new molecule that can block the build-up in the brain of beta-amyloid. This is the toxic protein that causes Alzheimer's disease. But rather than working on human subjects, uh, Dr Leila Luheshi, who's based at the genetics department here at the University of Cambridge, made the discovery using fruit flies that were genetically engineered to develop the insect equivalent of Alzheimer's disease. Mira Senthalingham went along to meet her to find out more. So it turns out that if you'd like to study Alzheimer's disease, really you need to have some sort of model of the disease in you know, an organism other than humans, which you can kind of you know, try out new treatments on and you know, uh, test some new and rather crazy ideas. And it turns out Drosophila are very good for this. Actually, they have quite complicated brains, a lot of the same genes that there are in humans. And also, yeah, they have very short lifespans, so we can test lots of different treatments very rapidly in them. It turns out that we can give them something like Alzheimer's disease and then go out and try and, try and find different ways of curing it. So how do you set about giving them Alzheimer's disease? So we take the gene that uh, encodes for the protein that seems to be important in causing Alzheimer's disease in humans, and we introduce it into our fruit flies. And then when that gene is uh, expressed in the brain, then uh, this protein, which is called amyloid, clumps together in the brains of our fruit flies, just like it does in the brains of humans with Alzheimer's disease. And then the fruit flies, you know, their brain starts to degenerate, and we, get, you know, we can see that they can't move properly, they die much sooner, and they, their memory is impaired as well, just like people with Alzheimer's disease. So is it the case where all people that have the gene will develop Alzheimer's? No, so actually the amyloid protein that uh, damages the brain in Alzheimer's disease is present in all of us. But under normal circumstances, it's present in small enough quantities and in a form which doesn't seem to cause us any problems. In fact, what seems to happen in, the patient, in patients with Alzheimer's disease, most patients with Alzheimer's disease, is that you produce a little bit more maybe of a slightly stickier than usual version of this protein that starts to stick together in the brain and then that starts to damage the neurons. So having given these flies Alzheimer's, um, you've set about finding a new molecule that should hopefully 
treat Alzheimer's in these flies and hopefully in humans? Yes, so what we thought was, well, if we know there's a a protein, this protein called amyloid, which clumps together in the brains, then if we can prevent this protein from clumping together, then hopefully the cells in the brain won't die anymore. And so what uh, our colleagues in Sweden did was they designed a new molecule, which is called an affibody, which binds to this amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease and prevents it from clumping together. And they first tested this in a test tube and they found this was very effective. And then they came to us and said, well, can you test this in your fruit fly model of Alzheimer's disease? And when we put this new molecule, this affibody, into the brains of our fruit flies with Alzheimer's disease, we found that essentially the fruit flies were cured of the Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, the protein which clumped together, this amyloid protein, was now completely cleared from the brain. How was this affibody created? It's based on a protein that is found naturally inside bacteria. And what our colleagues in Sweden did was they made mutations in this protein. They they screened thousands, in fact, millions of different mutations in this protein until they found a mutant form of this protein that bound very specifically to the amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease. And how did you set about putting this affibody into the Drosophila then as well? So we essentially did the same thing that we did to make our model of Alzheimer's disease in the first place. We made a gene for this affibody protein and we put the gene into the brain of our fruit fly and then that gene expresses the affibody protein. So then we have one fruit fly that expresses the affibody, one fruit fly that has Alzheimer's disease and when we breed those two fruit flies together, their offspring, their children, have both proteins. They have the Alzheimer's-related protein and they also have the affibody. And then we could see that when you had those two proteins together, the flies didn't get Alzheimer's disease anymore. So it's not the case where the fly had Alzheimer's and then you gave it this protein and it actually treated the Alzheimer's it had had previously? No. So right now we have to do it with both proteins there from the beginning together. So we prevent uh, the amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease from ever clumping together. But what we would like to do in the future is to make our flies so that they actually develop Alzheimer's disease. So we let the protein you know, stick together in the brains of the flies and then put in our affibody protein afterwards and see if we can you know, either halt the symptoms or reverse them. But we haven't done that experiment yet. First of all, we have to go through some, some more tests in more, slightly more complicated models of Alzheimer's disease than our fruit fly to see if really this kind of uh, protein, for instance, if we inject it into the bloodstream, can even get into the brain because it's got to be able to get to the brain, really, we think, to have any effect. And so we're still some way off seeing whether this kind of therapy would ever work in, in humans. But at least in principle, we know that if we can clear this amyloid protein from the brain, that it might help the Alzheimer's patients, assuming we get to them early enough in the disease. That was Leila Luheshi from the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge talking to Mira Senthilingham there about work she's just published in the journal PLOS Biology. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. We're talking about the future of farming and what science can do about it this week. And coming up, we'll hear how pea plants might hold the key to boosting soil productivity. But first, the human population is estimated to be about 6.8 billion right now, and it's set to grow to over 9 billion by 2040. Supporting a population that big is a really big challenge, but it could be made even harder if you factor in the effects of climate change. And Professor Brian Thomas is from Warwick University, where he works on predicting how climate changes could affect future food production. He's with us now. Brian, hello. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Please tell us if you would, in what sort of way or how do we think climate change will impact on agricultural production? 
I think the impact of climate change on production will be shown in a range of different ways. We're dealing with, first of all, the general changes in the, in the climate, which you might think of as um, increasing levels of carbon dioxide, which is going to be a key issue for agriculture, but also uh, increasing temperatures and um, changes in water availability. So at one level, we can look at uh, those factors and make uh, assessments of how they might affect crop production and food production. And then imposed uh, on top of this, there are changes in particular types of um, weather conditions, sometimes thought of as extreme events, but where you get combinations of weather that in combination with a particular characteristic of the crop uh, may lead to loss of production or crop loss in a particular year. Uh, we see that at the moment that in general crops um, in the UK are well adapted to the general UK climate but when we have a particular uh, set of unusual weather then that will then often result in a particular problem in a p particular crop uh, and we see that in a particular way and so our work is really um, a combination of some general assessments of the impact of climate change on overall crop production but also trying to tease out which particular aspects might be changed and therefore really get some heads up on, on the sort of research we need to do to modify crops to anticipate those problems. Is it just a question of saying, well, some bits of the earth are going to become a lot less propitious for growing anything? Some will become better suited to growing things that currently grow in different places and so what we need to do is to have a, a rejig, move things around a bit and we'll maintain productivity without actually having to sacrifice anything or are we facing a situation where actually we're not going to be able to feed, feed everybody? Inevitably there will be shifts in, in production will often be you know the art art of the possible but there are some big challenges there for example in some of the models i've seen for production in china for example which is obviously in terms of its its scale and its contribution to overall food production is quite immense if you go back one step and say that one of the big problems is maintaining or sustaining production when temperatures increase so much of the um, the staple foods for certainly for temperate countries, the cereals, the impact of increasing temperature is usually to decrease yield. And that is partly to do with the fact that um, you get an acceleration of the growth of the crops, so they have less time to photosynthesis and, and accumulate resources. The models suggest that a lot of that will be offset, or some models say fully upset, offset, by the increasing fertilization effect of um, carbon dioxide. But really, I think, the estimates there probably subject to quite a lot of uncertainty. Could you just tell us, how is it you actually do what you do? Have you got a giant computer program where you're able to change various model parameters, tweak things in order to say, well, if we tweak this, this is the likely effect on this bit of the climate and this bit of the world and crops that grow there will change in the following way and then you, you do that many, many times and look at many, many different bits of the world and this gives you a global picture? Well, I mean, to be honest, we're not looking at a global picture. We're looking at very much at UK agriculture. And this work really is funded by DEFRA, who are trying to use this sort of information to to set their policy, although many of the, the principles we come up with would be would be applicable very widely. But the, the, the main approach we're taking is to use what is freely available output from computer models from UK CPO9, who make predictions of the UK climate over the 
for the rest of this century and they will give estimates of changes in overall rainfall and average temperature. But they also have a facility to take these averages and to deconvolute them into typical runs of daily weather. That would include things like day temperature, night temperature, rainfall. And a lot of agriculture, a lot of production in agriculture, is sitting in quantitative models. And then you can use the output from the weather generator models, put it into the agricultural models, and then say, what's going to be the change, say, in 2030 or 2050, 2080? Speaking of which, Brian, in just sort of 20 seconds... What's your prediction for the southeast corner of the UK in the next 30 years? Probably it will be warmer. It will be wetter in the winter, dry in the, in the summer. Crop production will probably hold its own just about. But crops that require a continual run of production are particularly vulnerable to periods of drought. Crops that require real cold in the winter, like fruit trees, are quite uh, vulnerable to the, the increasing temperature. Which is a worry because we've heard from Red Lace Celine, who's listening in Second Life and says, well, they was looking forward to the olive tree and the lemons in the UK garden. Well, never mind. Better luck next time. This is The Naked Scientist. That was Brian Thomas. He's at Warwick University and we're talking this week about the science of farming. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. This week we're talking about the science of farming and the future of food production in a warmer world. If you want to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, still to come, how scientists are tweaking the humble pea, pl- pea plant my false teeth in, to improve its taste and boost soil quality, and in kitchen science we'll be exploring the chemistry of chlorophyll. But first, Mira Senthalingam has been exploring how the domestication of indigenous tree species can help to meet the nutritional needs of the population. When many of us think of commercial crops coming from Africa, we think of coffee or cocoa. But the continent is home to some 3,000 species of wild fruit trees which have provided local residents with food and medicine for centuries. And these trees are now being domesticated and harnessed in countries such as Cameroon and Kenya, as well as others, in order to boost economy and meet the nutritional needs of the increasing population. Roger Leakey is a former director of the World Agroforestry Centre and adjunct professor of James Cook University in Australia. He helped develop this programme of domestication, and explain to me how his team set about doing this. The beginning of, of that process was to go into the communities and to start talking with them and saying, which of all the, the species that you used to collect from forest would you actually like to cultivate? And the answer is nearly always some of the indigenous fruits and nuts. They have high levels of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. Some of them are high in proteins and oils. So many of them have the dietary requirements that are not in starchy food crops. So I guess the thought is that they can be used to give a more balanced diet. Well, how did you set about getting farmers to actually start domesticating these and actually creating, say, nurseries of particular trees? Well, that turned out to be remarkably easy because they were so enthusiastic. Um, Nobody had ever asked them before what they wanted to do and they instantly started to understand the possibilities once we explained a little bit of very basic genetics. It's quite easy to talk about heritability and and the fact that children are different from the parents and siblings are different from one another and as soon as you mention that and say well then 
you can propagate and make, make multiple copies of the best one, uh, they instantly cottoned on. Another added benefit seems to be the fact that these various fruit trees can be harvested at different times of year. So yes. is the benefit then of this project also that you can have a continuous supply of various wild fruits? Yes, certainly. Um, and indeed, even within some species, we're, we're now seeing that we actually can find individual trees that, that fruit out of season. So um, if you take the African plum, for example, in Cameroon, uh, it, it normally fruits between May and September, but we've now got some cultivars which are fruiting around Christmas. So we can see, starting to see that we can actually extend the productive season by selection as well. So these fruit trees can be grown in rotation to supply fruit all year round. But what kinds of fruits are actually being grown and just how nutritious are they? Tony Simons is the current Deputy Director of the World Agroforestry Centre and he filled me in. Well, fruit trees provide uh, a number of things. They provide energy, vitamins, micronutrients, water, and also stimulants. And there are literally hundreds of different types of fruit trees. If you take the 33 trees native to the UK, there's only three that are essentially fruit trees. Um, that's the crabapple, the hazel, and the juniper. And those are hardly mainstream fruit trees. Whereas in the Nyomba woodland in southern Africa, there are 75 different fruit trees that provide vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, iron, micronutrients, energy for, for children, etc. And these are, these are tremendous contributions to household diets in rural areas. One of those species is the African plum, whose scientific name is Dacryoides edulis. And edulis in Latin means edible. So this African plum grows uh, in the humid forests of West Africa, it is eaten by local people, it's collected from the wild, but now it's been brought into cultivation because the marketing of it, the growing urban populations love this particular fruit. It is traded across regional boundaries at the level of about 70 million US dollars a year. Um, it's highly nutritious. It is prized for both cooked and also eaten fresh. And the oil from the seed is also now being used uh, in other food preparations. If we go to southern Africa, there's the species Sclerocaria berea. Sclera meaning hard, caria meaning nut. And this particular species is the one that is used in the liqueur amarula. But it, it's also used for beer making. It's used as a fresh fruit. And uh, this particular species is also used, and the oil of it is used in the food industry. So that is a very good oil, for instance, for sausage machines, etc. It's a lubricant where you need a food-grade oil. Other fruit species, Vitellaria paradoxa, that is the shea butter tree, is traded much more in um, Europe for both as a cocoa butter substitute and also for cosmetic and pharmaceutical products. What stage is this um, domestication at at the moment? How much of an increase in production, say, has there been and what have the benefits been so far of this? Let's take Ruapaka kekiana from southern Africa. Um, this particular species had wild fruit that were about uh, 10 or 15 grams each. The cultivars, the improved varieties, have fruit that are about 80 or 90 grams. So there's a five-fold increase in the size of the fruit. There's also been an increase in the thickness of the skin of the fruit so that it's not attacked by insects. And also they have a much longer shelf life. So rather than a three-, four-day shelf life, they now have a two- or three-week shelf life. And we've seen a lot of growth in horticulture industry in countries. And Kenya now supply something like $100 million worth of mangoes to the international market and about $60 million worth of avocado. So that's quite an improvement in terms of both international trade and feeding the population. But what's the next step? 
and as a result, what's in the future for these African villages? Let's go back to Rogeliki to find out. We started out in two villages in Cameroon, something like uh, 15 years ago now. Uh, it's snowballed from there, so now we're working with over 450 villages and um, more than 7,000 farmers in, in those villages. The next crucial step is um, scaling up. If we're really going to have impact on global poverty, malnutrition, hunger, then obviously it's got to be scaled up to to millions and millions of of farmers. And I've recently been uh, evaluating the longest-running project to date, and we found there that there were 31 positive impacts from the project already, ranging from obviously people making money, but people also being saying that they're healthier, they're eating better diets, they're able to um, send their children to school. And the most exciting one, actually, from my point of view, I think, was young people saying, we're actually going to see now that we have a future to stay in our village and make money in, in the villages rather than having to go to the town. So plenty of hope in the future of fruit then. That was Roger Leakey from James Cook University in Australia and Tony Simons, Deputy Director of the World Agroforestry Centre, talking to Mira Senthalingham. Thanks, Kat. Well, the humble pea, something of a wonder plant, we all like to think. For one thing, it adds nitrogen back into the soil and that reduces the amount of fertiliser that you need to add to the next crop that you want to grow on the same soil. But some scientists think they can make it even better. And Claire Demoni is with us from the John Innes Centre to explain how. Hello, Claire. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, if you would, first of all, um, why is the pea a good crop? Well, we really want to look at it within the context of increasing the sustainability of agriculture. We know we have to cut our use of nitrogen fertilisers. So we're looking at pea as really a model legume crop where we have excellent genetics and we can use a lot of very powerful techniques, molecular genetics, biochemistry, metabolite profiling to study seed quality. We've had lots of discussions with industries involved in uh, growing peas and uh, harvesting peas and so on, breeding peas. And um, one of the outcomes of these discussions within what's known as the Pulse Crop Genetic Improvement Network, which is funded by DEFRA, is that quality improvements um, are really greatly desired. At the moment, the industry uses quite subjective methods for determining quality. So better methodology for determining quality would really be very welcomed. So let's look at that first of all then. So are we defining quality in terms of how consumers see the pea on their plate and how the mushy pea goes down further up north on the coast? Um, Or are we talking about it in terms of what yields the plant that grows from that pea actually produces? Uh, We're talking first and foremost really about quality as perceived by the customer because there are a lot of uh, issues to do with uh, taste, flavour, mouthfeel, a lot of um, customer-determined traits. And um, on this basis, breeders are uh, putting their late-generation material through breeding programmes. They go to taste panels uh, who sit down and, and, and score their products on all sorts of characteristics which are done in a very subjective objective way, as you can imagine, um, and are quite time-consuming. And they end up uh, scoring their uh, the different lines on the basis of bitterness and sweetness and lots of different characteristics like this. But it really is um, a, 
a very subjective way of determining quality. So we want to really um, add some uh, biochemical knowledge to this and do metabolite profiling where we can look at all the range of compounds which are being determined uh, by these taste panels and link those through to the genes that are involved in the pathways that make these compounds and through that get hold of genetic markers that can be used by breeders. In that way they'll be able to use their markers much earlier in breeding programs and not do as they do at the moment which is reject valuable lines because at early stages they can't do this type of screening. I see what you mean. So in the same way as people are making better, fatter turkeys that put on more weight in the right places by knowing that the genes that tend to make those nice traits happen also tend to produce other visible changes in the bird so you can by picking the changes in the bird that you can see you get other benefits that you couldn't originally necessarily see you're doing that slightly more intelligently and slightly slightly more carefully um that will obviously produce improvements in quality that will make peas more popular but what about the other thing we discussed which was the question of improving the soil because peas do have this wonderful ability to take nitrogen out of the air and shove it into the soil don't they Yes, absolutely. And uh, of course, we get a value from not just the pea crop itself, but also the value to the subsequent crop. So this uh, can result in a huge saving in nitrogen fertilizer. And so this is an incredibly uh, valuable uh, thing to think about, uh, particularly these days with uh, the increasing costs of uh, nitrogen fertilizer, as well as the uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission uh, issue associated with nitrogen fertilisers. So we want to really encourage uh, farmers to, to choose to grow legume crops more as part of their rotations. So at the moment we know that they're not taken up as much as they could be and one of the things we want to do within this project is to do some predictive analysis uh, based on, on having better systems for guaranteeing quality and hence a high price return to the farmer. Uh, we want to look at what the impact of this could be on more frequent uptake of legumes as part of rotations so this is this is it sounds like an awful pun sort of vegetable analogy so this is more carrot than stick if the pea tastes good uh, more people will buy it therefore more farmers will grow it rather than saying to people just grow this because it's good for the soil and in a climate change sort of equation it's better for the environment too because you're not putting fertilizers on soils which we know contribute greenhouse gases and also the synthesis of those fertilizers in the first place eventually leads yes. to the release of co2 Yes, absolutely. Um, and of course, there has to be an incentive to the farmer to choose to grow the crops. Um, the farmers won't grow it simply for public goods. They need an incentive. And there are um, good quality markets that give a very good price. And um, and if they can access those markets, um, that's not just the vining pea uh, markets, but also the canning markets give a, a good return to the farmer. And there are some excellent export markets. And in some years, we don't meet those markets uh, or the potential of those markets in the UK. So, uh, for example, even for homegrown vining crops uh, in the last, I think, two to three years back, we had to import vast amounts from New Zealand um, So, because our, our, our stocks were so low. So there is a lot of potential uh, for uh, increasing production of these. And just to finish off, Claire, where is the project now? Has it just got going or are you well into it? And what's the timeline? 
Uh, no, we have just started um, at the beginning of February and uh, we've really, that was just the administrative start. Um, we are now just starting to um, set out some uh, plants to uh, grow in plots and we, of course, have, at the John Innes, we have access to the John Innes germplasm collection, which is a collection of over 3,000 lines from around the world. So we'll be choosing among those for uh, exotic lines, which may give us some of the valuable genes that we want to introduce into breeding material. Claire, thank you. I love peas. And so does MT Mimulus, who's listening to us in Second Life, and says, I love peas just the way they are. Sounds like the Bridget Jones situation. That was uh, Claire Demoni, who is from the John Innes Centre in Norwich, talking about her pea plants. Cat. And now from uh, peas to another type of plant, let's join Ben and Dave, who are exploring the chemistry of chlorophyll. For this week's experiment, Dave and I are looking at the chemistry of plants, and in particular the chemistry of plant leaves. So, Dave, what are we going to do today? I'm going to look at one of the most important pigments in the natural world, and that's chlorophyll. Now, this is the stuff that's responsible for photosynthesis, isn't it? It it absorbs light from the sun, and it gives the plants the sugar it needs for energy. That's right, and we're going to try and separate it out from all the other coloured pigments in a leaf by using a really classic chemistry technique called chromatography. Chromatography is essentially a black art. It's about separating different substances by how well they dissolve in a solvent and how well they're attached to a substrate. So you've got to get the solvent and the substrate right to separate out the things you're trying to separate. What solvent do we need when we're looking at chlorophyll? One of the best ones is acetone, and you can get that in cheap nail polish removers. If you look at the ingredients, they should say acetone. Um, The expensive ones have got other lovely things which are better for your skin, but you want the cheap, grotty one. Now, acetone is the stuff that gives nail polish remover that really distinctive, sharp smell, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's also the stuff which dissolves plastic, so be careful of it around anything plastic. OK, so we have smelly nail polish remover, and we have a handful of leaves. What's next? We need a substrate, and we're going to use paper. Does it matter what sort of paper you use? As I was saying, this is quite a black art. Um, it appears to be very sensitive to the type of paper. It certainly doesn't work on any kind of tissue papers or anything designed for mopping things up. You want to use a filter paper, which is very good at not sticking things to it. So blotting paper would be out, but coffee filter should be fine. Yeah, and you've got to use white coffee filter, otherwise you can't see anything. And what about things like writing paper? Would they work? You can give it a go. Um, it will produce different results, but they can be interesting as well. So we're going to use coffee filter, which should give us some fairly good results. We have our leaves ready and we have our solvent. So how do we get this started? First thing you want is to make a nice thin strip of coffee filter, so maybe a centimetre wide. And then trim the end so it's nice and square. We then need to put some of the leaf onto it. I found a really good way of doing that is to take a very thin coin, something like a 1p coin, um, with a smooth edge around the outside. You then put the leaf face upwards on top of the coffee filter, about two centimetres away from one end, and then push nice and hard with the coin and roll it a little bit, and you should, should find that when you take the leaf off, you get a blob of green colour on the paper. OK, so we have our strip of filter paper. Two centimetres up from one end, there's now a blob of juice squeezed out of a leaf. Is that ready to go? Well, you seem to get cleaner results if you leave it to dry out first. So if you leave it for five or ten minutes and somewhere nice and warm and dry all the liquid off it, then that's much better. I've got one here I've already dried out. So you want to put a bit of acetone in a jar. Basically, you want the bottom of the jar covered with acetone and enough there that it's not going to evaporate too quickly. 
And now we just need to dip the end of the paper in the acetone and support it some way. I'm just going to fold the, up the top of the paper over so it hangs on the top of the gel. So the paper itself needs to go into the acetone, but only the bottom little bit. And actually the acetone doesn't even get as high as the blob of plant material. You said dip it in there. Do we just dip it in and remove it or do we need to leave it in the solvent? You want to leave it in there for 10 or 15 minutes until that solvent, you can see it's gently moving its way up the paper until it's moved most of the way up your strip of paper. So the solvent's making its way up the paper and already I can see that the blob of green that was there squeezed out of the leaf has become sort of stretched out up the paper. It's become a big blur. Okay, so what's happening here is that you've essentially got like a river of solvent very slowly flowing up the piece of paper. The chemicals it from the leaf, some of them are slightly soluble in this solvent, so they'll dissolve for a bit, and they'll get moved up with this river of solvent, then sometimes they'll stop being dissolved and fall back onto the paper, and maybe they'll dissolve again and move up. So each different substance will be moving up through the paper at a slightly different speed. So the ones with greater affinity for the solvent, as it were, are likely to move further? Yep, they should do, and the ones with minimum affi affinity are going to move very slowly. So... Should we just end up with all of these different chemicals being evenly distributed up that bit of paper? Well, I've got a few here that which I've done already. Here's some from the carnation leaf, which we were using earlier. Here at the bottom, you see there's a sort of brown lump. Um, that's actually where I did the squidging with the coin. And obviously there's a load of substances which didn't dissolve in the liquid at all. And a little bit higher, there's kind of a dark bluey green. And then quite a lot further up, there's a kind of much lighter yellowy green. It's pretty much clear in between them, though. This isn't a big smear. This is formed bands in certain places. That's right. The different substances essentially have a speed at which they move up the paper, and it's quite a predictable speed. So they move up as bands as the solvent flows. So actually the solvent is separating out these chemicals in such a way that if we know how fast any particular chemical moves, we can identify which chemicals are where. That's right. And it's even more critical for chemistry, this process in various forms, because in chemistry you often aren't dealing with a single substance, you're dealing with a horrible mixture of substances, and you want to work out what on earth is in this mixture. And so by using these sort of techniques, you can separate out all the substances, and then you can deal with one at a time, which is a lot less complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought that the green stuff in leaves is chlorophyll, but by the looks of it here, it's separated out into two different bands, which suggests to me that there's two different chemicals and they're both green. Yes, in fact, there are two different chemicals and they're both chlorophyll. In plants, there's two different types of chlorophyll, chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. They both absorb light at the blue end of the spectrum and the red end of the spectrum. One of them absorbs really deep blue and really deep red and the other one's slightly less deep blue and slightly less deep red. And so they look slightly different colours. So I imagine this gives it the advantage of absorbing light over a wider range of wavelengths. That's right, the plant wants to absorb as much light as it can, and if it can throw away the minimum amount of light, the better it is for it. There are actually other colours of chlorophyll as well. There's, in fact, another two, which you can find in things like algaes and seaweeds, but never in plants. You also said earlier that if you do this with different paper, you'll get a different result. But surely all the chemicals are the same, so you'll still get the same bands. But they might not stick to the paper in exactly the same way done this with various kinds of paper. One of them which is quite interesting is just normal writing paper. Here you can see that all the green colours have stayed exactly in the same place, but there's this very, very faint purple colour slightly further up. Now, one very common purple dye in plants is anthocyanins, which are the things which give red cabbage that purple colour.
So using different solvents and using different substrates, in our case different kinds of paper, you can actually separate out the chemicals that you find in leaves and find some very interesting things and all very pretty colours. That's all we've got for Kitchen Science this week and we'll be back with more very soon. Thanks, Ben and Dave, using their kitchen chromatography there to separate out the chemicals found in plants and finding the different forms of chlorophyll. There's loads of other experiments you can try at home on our website, thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking about the science of farming and food production, including food production into the future because of things like climate change. Uh, we're joined by Brian Thomas and Claire Demoni. Uh, Brian, there's a question here from David and Judith, and they say, is fertiliser more damaging when you put it on fields than, than fossil fuels effectively are? Um, well, I think it's not really a question of um, one or the other because I think, as we've heard earlier, the manufacture of um, fertilisers involve major uh, amount of energy and contribute significantly to um, to greenhouse gases, and therefore you have to uh, burn fossil fuels to obtain the uh, the fertiliser in the in in the first place. I think in terms of fertiliser, it is possible to mitigate some of these problems. For example, as we've heard with plants that fix nitrogen, if we could extend that capability to others, that would help. If we had a more efficient process for fixing nitrogen, more efficient the Haber process, or we can get plants that use nitrogen more efficiently, and there's a lot of work going on at the moment looking at the genetics of, um, of that particular aspect of crop production. Which is, I guess, your area. I should say your field, to take a farming analogy, Claire. Uh, yes, and uh, I think there's some debate as to how much of applied nitrogen fertiliser ends up as nitrous oxide. The IPCC estimates that about 1% uh, ends up as nitrous oxide, but there, is, there are some papers in the literature which suggest that that's a, a three- or four-fold uh, underestimate, and it could, in fact, be much higher than that. So um, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of discussion as to how much, but it's, certainly nitrous oxide uh, is a greenhouse gas much more potent than uh, carbon dioxide by several hundred times. Thank you, Claire. Uh, just while we're mentioning it, Silverwing Benoit, who's listening to us in Second Life, said, if vegetables smelt like bacon, then the world will be a hell of a lot healthier. But he goes on to say, Claire, is a black-eyed pea actually a pea or a bean? Uh, no, that's uh, actually it's a, a, a member of the Vigna uh, species, if I remember correctly. It's certainly not a pea. OK, well, that answers that one. Um, Troy McLuhan pointed out when you're talking about peas that actually they're really heavy and hard to handle, very dusty, um, and the weight means that they need a special reinforced grain bin to hold them. Um, I guess that needs factoring into the environmental argument, though, doesn't it? Yes, I can't say this is something we've come across in the lab, so uh, this is news to me. But uh, yes, it certainly sounds like an industrial problem that needs to be tackled. This is just one of the markets, of course, uh, because of the vining and canning peas are, are harvested at the immature stage, so uh, we don't have that problem with those. But uh, the combining peas for uh, animal feed and for marrow fats, uh, these are the edible export markets, um, I guess that's the problem that's being referred to. But uh, as I said, it's not one of come across. And Brian, do, does this sort of thing get taken into account in models like yours? Because obviously it's easy to keep adding things and think, well, we, have we thought about how we get the crops in and how that may change in a warmer world? Not particularly in the, the work um, we've been doing, 
But I, I guess there is a lot of work looking at total carbon footprinting, if you like, of production systems going on at the moment. And that would be one of the factors along with, you know, where you produce them and how you transport them around and the logistics of that. So that there is, I mean, this whole total energy balance of how you produce crops is a very much a live issue at the moment. Thank you, Brian. Brian Thomas. Kat, uh, there's a question here from John Birmingham uh, related to what you were talking about on, with cancers earlier, and he's wondering if you could explain how cancers actually spread between different organs. Um, well, this is the process called metastasis, and basically it happens when, as cancers kind of evolve within the body, eventually the cells evolve the properties that they can start to break away from the starting primary tumour and they spread through the bloodstream or through the lymphatic system and they set up home and start growing somewhere else, often in organs like the lungs, the liver and the brain. We're not entirely sure why they pick those areas. It's sometimes thought it's because they're areas of high blood flow, but there may also be biochemical properties of different parts of the body that different cancers like to spread to. So it's a, an area that's really under a, a lot of active research and is um, an area that hopefully we can make progress in in the future because if we can stop cancer from spreading, that would really be uh, the, the route to beating it properly. Anyway, it's now time to move on to our question of the week and we're returning to food and looking at how much food we really use. Here's Diana O'Carroll with question of the week. This week, are we really made up of everything we eat? Hi, my name is Harriet Dickinson from Cambridge. And I want to know, are all the calories in food actually absorbed by the body? So is it really worth reading the calorie count on the back of every pack? Hello, I'm Susan Jebb. I'm a scientist at the Medical Research Council unit, Human Nutrition Research in Cambridge. Not all of the calories that are actually in a food will be absorbed, digested and available for the body to use. What happens is that the calories which are in food, which would be released if we were just to burn it, as we might do in a bomb calorimeter in the laboratory, those calories cannot all be absorbed by the body. Some will be lost in the feces and the remainder will be digested. And about perhaps 10% of the total calories we consume might actually appear at the other end of the gut. Once calories have been absorbed, again, they're not all fully available. Some will be lost in urine, for example. The final loss of calories comes because some of the energy is fermented by the bacteria in the gut. And so it's not available to humans. It's actually burned off by the bacteria that are living inside us. And so the consequence of all of that is that not all the calories that are actually in a food will be available for the body to use, but in fact the losses are proportionally quite small. The calories that you see written on the back of a food pack have already had all of these adjustments made for the amount that will be digested and absorbed. And so the calories you see on the packet is actually not the total calories in that food, it's the so-called metabolizable energy, the amount of energy which is going to be available to the body. So it is actually worth comparing the listed calories on the back of a food packet to your guideline daily allowance. No escape for the wicked, sadly. But interestingly, Susan Jebb mentioned that bacteria change the availability of calories in food. And it turns out that different species of bacteria metabolise energy differently. Jeff Gordon from the University of Washington, St. Louis, found that by moving gut bacteria from fat mice to thin mice made them put on weight and vice versa. 
And on the forum, Jessica H mentioned that protein can contain calories when it leaves the body, as it's much harder to extract energy from protein than from fat or carbohydrates. Moving from the gut to the mouth now for next week's question. Hi, hello, my name is Paige. I am a student at University of North Texas in the U.S., and I love the podcast of the Naked Scientist. Now, my question is, I've heard that a dog's mouth is cleaner than a human's. Now, I'm wondering if that's true, or is it that the normal flora of a human is more virulent than a dog's? Thank you. You never know where their mouths have been. Actually, with my dog, you did, but wished you didn't. If you know the answer to this one, then email us with the address chris at thenakedscientists.com or by using the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana. That's lovely Diana with her lovely question of the week. Thank you, Kat. And of course, talking about question of the week, you can get question of the week as a podcast in its own right. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW or you can look it up on iTunes and you can get all of the questions that we've answered over the last couple of years, in fact. There must be quite a few of them now. But thank you very much to Diana O'Carroll. That's it for this week. We've run out of time. Uh, a big thank you to our wonderful guest, Brian Thomas from Warwick University and Claire Demoni, who was from the John Innes Centre in Norwich, UK. And also to our production team, Ben, Dave, Mira, Tom and Diana. Thank you for doing a wonderful job. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the science of the weather. We'll be finding out how planes, it turns out, are actually making clouds. The contrails that they pump out in their exhaust fumes are actually seeding big clouds, and we'll find out why and what effect this could be having. And we'll also hear how scientists are saying they know how to steer a hurricane. Problem is, would you want them doing it because it could steer it into your backyard? Ouch. If you've got a question about the weather or some comments for us, then do send them in. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Great to hear from you, and until next time, goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.